You're listening to a 95BFM podcast. In the first week of June, visual artist and arts foundation icon Jim Allen passed away aged 100. Allen's installations are on display around the country and he played a significant role in arts education. But instead of me telling you about Jim today, in the studio we have with us a guest who knew him very well. Kia ora Victoria, how are you? Yes, you're going to... Kia ora, I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show and that lovely, lovely mic-turning noise. Um, Do you want to start by describing your relationship with Jim? Sure. Uh, um, I met Jim in 2010. I was doing my honours in art history at the University of Auckland and I was really interested in, I guess, dematerialised art practices and there weren't really any postgrad courses on that. So Caroline Verko, who was my supervisor, set up an internship for me with Michael at Gallery. And at the time, um, they were working on a big new book with Jim Allen and they required support for that process. And so I worked with Jim on collating images and photographs for that book. So that involved um, spending a lot of time with him going through his archives at the time he was 88 years old and synthesizing that material together for any listeners that don't know uh, who Jim Allen was can you gloss over the trajectory of his life in the arts very quickly sure so Jim was an artist an educator and also a sailor and he was born in Wellington in 1922 Uh, He was always very interested in art from a young age at school. Um, His father served in Gallipoli and in Palestine, so he came from a family with a lot of military service. So he himself served in World War II. He went across when he was 18 and spent a lot of time in Italy. And when he finished, when the war ended, he um, got to study art in Florence. Um, And then he returned to New Zealand and studied sculpture at Canterbury University. And from there, he got a scholarship to go to the Royal College of Arts in London, which not many New Zealanders have done. Other artists who did that were Ralph Hortere and Billy Apple. Um, And then he returned to New Zealand and really interestingly started teaching art to children. So he was involved in the Northern Māori Art Project and he taught in places like... um, Oroaiti in Northland and he worked with an educator there called Elwyn Richardson who had a very radical approach to teaching children and so they had a very integrated child-led way of teaching where they would do art and science and creative writing and poetry all together and so there are amazing pictures of Jim in like a shirt and tie building kilns with students like digging up clay Um, so he had that kind of radical way of looking at Um, educating and then in 1961 he started teaching at Elam and he taught there until the 1970s at which point he moved to Sydney taught at the Sydney College of Arts for 10 years and then returned to New Zealand where he started practicing as an artist again Mm. well quite an extraordinary life Um, really was yeah (laughs) and we'll get um, into some of the legacy of his art um, education in a little bit Um, but obviously you worked with him Mm -hmm. quite closely through the gallery um, and as his assistant supporting him with his book can you describe what Jim was like as a person what was it like to sit down and have a cup of tea with him so uh 
Jim was a very physically strong person, but also incredibly kind and supportive. And in my experience as a young woman, often when I would meet great men, um, it would always be about celebrating them as like patriarchs and they'd be quite intimidating and people like beneath their station had to be seen and not heard. Jim was the absolute opposite of that. He was mm. always listening. He was always interested in what young grads were doing. He would read all the art magazines. When I met him when he was 88, all he wanted to know was like what was going on now. So he was very young at heart. Uh, he was a very supportive and kind person. We did drink a lot of tea together. Mm. He would also prepare me a little tray with biscuits and cheese and tomato. And so he was a very <laughs> like, nurturing, kind, um, supportive person. And he was a joy to be around. And he's incredibly wise and lovely. Mm, and much missed, I imagine. Um, he will circle back to art education uh, now, which he had a strong influence on both here mm -hmm. and I believe in Australia. Yes. Can you describe what their influence was in how Jim approached art teaching? Sure. So I think um, the reason why I sort of mentioned his father serving is that his father was also a carrier, so he worked with trucks. And in during the war, Tim, uh, Jim also did a lot of work with um, as a kind of engineer. So I think he had a kind of, through working in that capacity or working with like trucks and transport and logistics and being involved in the war, he had a very like practical can-do problem solving meant like, and also mechanical mindset, which I think was a very unique approach to art making. And I think combined with that is what he learned from Elwood Richardson and the Northern Māori Art Project and approach to pedagogy, which is quite about fundamentals, but also quite radical and not limited by um, precedents or prior art movements, like something quite immediate and practical. So I think he brought that kind of mechanical problem-solving sensibility together with an almost like reminiscent of Bauhaus, like fundamental sense of play and materials mm. um, with him when he went to Elam. And he kind of combined that with what he had experienced through being a student in London and being someone sort of trained in like a 19th century approach to sculpture, a very kind of academic approach, but then seeing what was going on in the art world at the time um, in London. So all of that together uh, meant that he had a really unique approach. So there's a story that when he arrived at Elam, the students had taken all of the um, plaster casts of the classical sculptures and thrown them in the gully. And it's oh this really gosh. great metaphor for like just casting the past aside. Mm. And when he came in, he started um, encouraging use of like metal works and bronze and different materials. And that kind of uh, evolved into a real interest in um, working with technology and a dematerialized approach to art making in the 70s at mm. Elam. Yeah. And how much do you think of that approach to art education remains today in the teaching institution? Well, I'm not a currently a student at Elon, <laughs> so I can't say. But I can say that I think Jim has, I feel his legacy at Elon. So at the time when he was there, that was when the Elon Library was set up. That was also when they set up a um, program for artists and residents to come teach at Elon. And also that's when they started to really get into crits and talking to each other in the studios. And um, one of the most interesting things about his tenure at Elon teaching sculpture is that he organised tremendous amounts of events in coordination with like the Auckland Council and Auckland Art Gallery, it was called Auckland City Gallery at the time. So there are sort of images of um, massive installations outside the Civic Theatre. So that kind of collaboration between 
um, Elam, the council, um, you know, engineering firms, logistics, and people. You could see um, these events taking place around the city. I think is quite inspiring and it's something mm. that we could maybe aspire to do again. Yeah, and yeah. it extends art outside of the walls of the institution exactly, and allows yes. it to yep. be in public spaces. Um, we were speaking off air about this interview that you have of um, Jim and Lynn Lai. Yes. Um, speaking about art, but all they wanted to talk, to talk about was art teaching. Do you want to yep. describe that and perhaps explain why you think they held such value in art teaching uh, okay. for the future uh, or success of art? Sure. Um, so one thing that I neglected to mention is I think part of his um, effect in Elam was it was driven by, he had a sabbatical in 1968 where he travelled the world and he went to the UK, the US, Brazil, Europe, and he was really there at the time of um, massive student movements and he was so very inspired by that and the political movements and the kind of activism that he saw. So he really brought that all back when he came back to Elam. Um, but during that sabbatical year, he went to New York and he spoke to Lin Lai. And they had a, discuss- a really quite elaborate discussion on education. And there's just a little quote that I just think is really great that I'll read mm. aloud. So Jim is saying, I tend to see in students that arrive within my orbit at the early stages of art school as being disintegrated personalities because the system has splintered them so much. So therefore, I try to do the opposite and create a situation, a climate or environment of feeling, which is an integrated one where anything goes, anything can be talked about, where any issues can be raised and one can tackle this and it can grow into any kind of thing at all. So another quote that Jim said is that, like, I can't teach anyone anything. He was very much about just creating an environment where teaching and learning can happen and making that space. And I think that's quite a a good thing to think about. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Jim's orbit, I I love that. Um, And that philosophy, I guess, is reflected in his own art practice and what we might call immersive art experience. Can you give example of some of Jim's work? Sure. I think for me, the quintessential um, photograph of Jim is him sort of wearing a black T-shirt and jeans standing amidst this um, installation called um, New Zealand Environment Number no. 5 from 1969, which was shown at the Govett Brewster. And it's, so it's an installation that consists of um, oiled wool, wood chips, um, hessian and green neon. And so he's kind of bathed in this, the cast of this green light. And if you think about the materials in this work, like oiled wool and wood chips, it really points to sort of like primary industries and the way in which... Um, Aotearoa was meant to function as a place where raw materials are kind of extracted and exported to the world. And just even his use of light um, means that it includes whoever is in proximity to it because the light, you know, changes how you appear. And he did another work from 1969 called Small Worlds, which involved um, a big PVC inflatable cube which sat on a bed of... um, uh, Hessian as well and then there were this there was a UV light with all these threads nylon threads coming down that you could kind of pass through and within the threads um, were printed lines of poetry from Hone Tufare mm. so very much um, experiential like moving through sculpture um, and so that's those are kind of two of the early installations which are obviously very experiential and then in the 1970s he did poetry for chainsaws which is a really great work where he um after he left Elam, he went to 
uh, Adelaide and had a, did a residency at the Experimental Art Foundation uh, where he did this performance called Poetry for Chancellors where he read out the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg to a series of chainsaws which moved around the room and he was mm. barefoot um, reciting poetry to them. And then uh, there was Contact, which is a three-part performance. And the, f- the first part, Computer Dance, involved performers with receivers and transmitters interacting with each other with blindfolds. And then the second part, Parangole Capes, involved... Um, sensory deprivation and performers being restricted by these um like pod costumes which they then kind of freed themselves from and then the third part body articulation imprint involves um performers playing with paint and kind of painting each other and it just becomes this big almost orgiastic frenzy of paint and bodies Mm -hmm. so quite Dionysian yeah, quite, quite extraordinary <laughs> works. Um, would recommend to listeners uh, having a little rummage on the internet, um, if you can, to have a look at, at some of Jim's work. And his passing is, of course, difficult. He was very, um, very loved. Uh, but it's also given us time to reflect on his extraordinary life. Uh, I guess my final question to you, Victoria, is how do you think his life and work will continue to impact the art world? I think in two ways, very like physically, um, he did a massive amount of commissions throughout the country. If you take a walk down in Tamaki Makoto, you will see um, Michio Ihara's Wind Tree, which is a sculpture in Silo Park. Um, And then Helen Escobado Cursabon's Signals artwork, which is at the end of the Strand in Pinal. These are two public sculptures that came to Aotearoa when he organized a sculptural symposium and they remain here sitting in the city. Um, he also worked on the Fortuna Chapel in Karori in Wellington. Um, he did a big mural at the Hocken Library in Dine- so he and he's done many churches and public sculptural commissions across the country. So physically he is present everywhere. But I think more importantly, a lot of people refer to him as a kind of godfather of contemporary art. And, um, you know, we have such a rich tradition of art making in New Zealand that stretches for centuries. But I think Jim... Jim's time at Elam in the 70s is really recognised as kind of a a birth of art as we know it today, like very um, international in orientation um, and very kind of cutting edge. And his legacy is also felt, continues to be felt um, at Elam and in structures that he set up and approaches to teaching and learning, which I hope continue. Well, thank you very much, Victoria, for your time this uh, today. This afternoon, we are indeed into the afternoon. That was art historian and uh, Michael Lett Gallery coordinator, Victoria Wynne-Jones, speaking with me about the life of Jim Allen. That was a 95BFM podcast. To hear more, head to 95BFM.com slash bcasts.